Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Shackman. Every so often, the media picks up the meme that books and readers are on the decline, that our short attention span, Twitter and Facebook-driven culture has supplanted long-form narrative. And it seems that every time those stories circulate, something happens to change or debunk the narrative. Even the national obsession with a book like Fire and Fury proves something. Joan Didion said that we tell each other stories in order to live. It's also those stories in literature and even in popular fiction and nonfiction that still, after all these centuries, shape how the world continues to unfold. That's what we're going to talk about today with my guest, Martin Polkner. Martin Polkner is a professor of English and comparative literature at Harvard. He's the general editor of the Norton Anthology of World Literature and the Norton Anthology of Western Literature. His massive open online course at Harvard has brought 4,000 years of literature to students across the globe. And he's the author of the book, The Written Word, The Power of Stories to Shape People, History, Civilization. Martin Polkner, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jeff. It's great to have you here. It, in many ways, what you write about is that the, the story of the spread of literature and the kind of democratization of literature is in some ways a story of, of different technologies over time. Talk a little bit about that first. It is. Um, and that story of technologies is very much written based on the experience we all share, namely that we are living at this extraordinary moment when how we communicate uh, is changing profoundly and there are lots of worries and opportunities connected to that. So, so, so I thought I wanted to get a grip on what's happening around us and I, the best way I, I could think of doing that was to look at the deep history, the prehistory of our current moment and to look at these earlier moments when profound technological change really shaped, reshaped the, the, the written world. And so I focused on things like the introduction of the alphabet, which made reading and writing much easier, allowed more people to participate in, in writing. Something like paper, which I had never thought about very much, uh, but again, it made writing so much cheaper and that allowed more people to participate, which also meant that there are different stories being told and written and, and read. And then, of course, the printing press, both when it was first invented in China and then when it was reinvented in, in Europe. So those were some of the moments I focused on. Uh, and, and in each case, similar issues came to the fore something is changing, is culture in crisis, what are the opportunities, what happens when more people participate in writing. And it's interesting to think that this has been going on since kind of the beginning of this process, this fear, this reaction, that, that even the written word made people worry that the telling of stories with respect to an oral tradition was going to be a loss. Absolutely. I, I, in, in one chapter, I talk about these, what I call charismatic teachers, people like the Buddha or Confucius or Socrates or even Jesus, these charismatic figures who lived in very literate cultures who could have written, but who decided not to write a single word. Their words are transmitted to us by their students. It's only because their students wrote that we know what the Buddha and Confucius, Jesus and Socrates said. And, and Socrates was the one to make the most explicit argument against writing. He, he said he, he had various worries about writing. He, he said it was bad for memory. 
once we trust these external storage devices to write down what we know, then we will no longer have to remember it in our own minds. He also worried that uh, the written word can be taken out of context. It, it, you can never ask a follow-up question. You can't ask a text for clarification. So he feared that there would be all kinds of miscommunication happening. So yes, at various moments, uh, there were real worries connected to it. And, and good worries, but in the end, the technological change and the democratization of writing proceeded nevertheless. And in many ways, it was those same arguments that we heard and still hear with respect to technology today and the impact that it's having. They sound very much like what we are talking about today, both when it comes to reading and writing, also teaching. For me, one of the most striking moments was when I was looking at these earliest fragments. We were talking about 4,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago, of scribal schools. Now, at, at that time, very small groups of people were, were trained in reading and writing. This was mostly before the alphabet, so it was very hard. You had to master hundreds of signs. So very small schools. But th so there are fragments from these teachers and students, and, and they, they are very much like, oh, the students today no longer, you know, they're no longer disciplined. They no longer know how to write. It was all better in the past. And, and students would complain about their mean teachers. And so, you know, this, this written three, 4,000 years ago, and it sounds like it could have been written yesterday. Talk a little bit about why some pieces of literature have survived so powerfully and others haven't. Yeah. So... It, it's so striking when you look at 4,000 years of literature and you became very conscious of just how much was lost and that really the only recipe for survival is continual use. A text needs to be, especially in the ancient world, it needed to be rewritten to transcribed into new forms. It needed to be taught. People needed to feel like that certain stories mattered. And, and the result was what I call foundational texts, texts like the Epic of Gilgamesh or the Homeric epics, but also religious texts that really became foundations, reference points for entire cultures, told people where they came from, why they are here, what, what we are doing on this earth, these profound questions that, that sort of helped orient people and, and stories that would be rewritten and adapted to different forms, maybe performed in theaters, used by new generations of storytellers. So th those became the texts that, that really dominated the, the world of writing for, for thousands of years. There, there are exceptions to this rule. There are some texts that disappeared entirely, and then by a fluke, were rediscovered many, many centuries or sometimes even thousands of years later. The, the Epic of Gilgamesh is one such text, and I, I love that story, but it's a very unlikely story because it was written on, on clay tablets. And that proved to be great because the library in which it, this, this text was housed burned down, and normally, of course, these texts would burn with them, texts written on papyrus or paper or parchment, but not on clay. You know, when you burn clay, it becomes harder. It's like a kiln. So these, these hardened clay tablets 
were buried underground, but they, they didn't deteriorate. They, were, they, they survived. And then when 2000 years later uh, in the 19th century, someone started to dig around and found them, this great foundational text that had been one of the most important texts in the world suddenly resurfaced again. The, the corollary to that is the way in which the, this canon, these foundational texts, still shape our view of the world today. They do, and and you know when I looked at these moments of technological change, I was uh, struck by two things. First, that it was often these old foundational canonical texts that became the earliest adopters of these new technologies. The the earliest printed text in the world is a Buddhist sutra that was printed in China on paper, um, and it, and it shows that these two new technologies. Chinese technologies, namely paper and print, were used by these canonical texts, such as religious texts, such as these Buddhist sutras. And then the very similar thing happened when print was reinvented by Gutenberg in Northern Europe. The first great text printed was, was the, Latin, the Latin Bible. So these texts are often in the best position to, to, to use and exploit these new technologies. But then this other thing happened simultaneously, um, namely that the new technologies really lowered the cost of literature. So they also always led to a, a flourishing of popular literature, of new kinds of stories. So both of these things happened, but the, the canonical texts were usually first. The, the other thing that you write about is the degree to which popular literature at any given time, is always looked down upon, and the degree to which, over time, it takes on a different kind of power. Yes, very much so. The, uh, one good example would be the Arabian Nights, that wonderful story collection. And there were many different kinds of story collections in the ancient world and through the Middle Ages, but the Arabian Nights probably is the most popular, even today, adapted by Disney. I mean, we all kind of grew up, whether we know, knew it then or not with with stories from from the Arabian Nights, but yes, it was found, looked down upon as as middle brow, what we would call middle brow popular literature, and even to this day, and especially in the Arabic world, people dislike the fact that the only text, literary text that people sometimes know is the Arabian Nights, which which people in the Arabic world feel like, oh, that's just this popular. Uh, uh, story collection. We have wonderful poetry that no one uh, uh, likes. So it's it's even to this day, uh, though usually um, over time, what used to be popular and looked down upon becomes canonical. And 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 you know, Arabian Nights are taught in colleges and schools all all, all over the world. Perhaps with the exception of the Arabic world, uh, and and regarded as 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 important literature now. To what extent has language and the language that stories are told in had an impact on, on their longevity and, and their power? The language was always an important uh, uh, factor. So, for example, the Homeric epics were written in Greek in, in, in what, what's the first full alphabet. Um, but I, I talk about how it was really Alexander the Great who made the Homeric epics world literature because he conquered huge parts of, of the Near East and parts of Asia. And that meant that he turned Greek 
into a li the lingua franca, the common language of a of a of of a large territory, and he built libraries and 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 really made Greek the an, a really important world language, and and that's how the Homeric epics became world literature because everyone who was studying Greek was learning Greek was studying the Homeric epics. That's was sort of the school text you would you would use. So yeah, the the the, the fate of different languages uh, uh, played played a big role, and especially since in the ancient world people didn't translate very much, and the practice of translating that we rely on now to read Homer and all these other texts only developed uh, uh, in the last 1,500, 2,000 years and only, only gradually became so dominant. So I've become a big fan of translation. I think translation is so important. Uh, uh, but for the longest time, you needed to learn the original, and that uh, was obviously very hard to do. To what extent has world literature, as you talk about it, been able historically to kind of transcend nationalism and tribalism and those kinds of forces. Yeah. So the it's interesting that even though world literature has been around for a long time the the term actually wasn't coined until the 19th century. And and so the 19th century was the century really when nationalism bec became dominant. Uh every group wanted their own nation state and and it was it was sort of the most the, the the most common political form of uh, of the time and it and probably until today and that in the 19th century people who thought about world literature very much thought of it as an as an antidote namely that that there needed to be more understanding between nations that it there was a real value in reading a text from a distant time and place because it would give you this marvelous access to 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 a kind of almost a kind of dna of culture and 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 i have to say i've come to really appreciate those arguments and i i think i i uh i i've adopted them for myself it's it's very important uh especially today to foster a kind of global understanding now when people say talk about global this and that it's so abstract and and so hard to wrap your mind around it and I think delving into a piece of literature makes that so much more concrete and uh, tangible. Of course, the pushback today is about relevance and about all of the things that it represents that are in many ways counter to aspects of the world today. It's a relevance because these are texts that are from from let's say the ancient world or from hundreds of years ago um, but I think there's a there's a again I would say there's a real importance and relevance to to reading world literature today because it I think it's the best way to prepare students for a kind of global marketplace because they need a, a, a kind of global literacy many companies demand that and you can acquire that in different ways through travel and by interacting with different people but that's not not everyone can do that and and so I think literature is a is, is a good way of doing that and I feel that students when I visit classrooms uh, in world literature and we're not just talking about coastal elite universities my anthology is used a lot in the south and very rural and remote universities and and I find that 
that it's a real value to students. They get really excited about learning something about the world that they wouldn't otherwise be exposed to. And is that canon being added to today? Are there things coming along today that, that are the natural evolution of this? Absolutely. I mean, the, the canon is being added today with contemporary literature, but it's also changing because every generation looks in the past and finds different things relevant. Uh, so, so the canon is actually quite a, I mean, there are certain texts that don't change very much, but there are others that come and go. And one of the things I wanted to do with, with my book is I talk about some very well-known texts like the Bible or like the Homeric epics, uh, but I also talk about texts that are lesser known and I think that should be more known. Uh, and I hope to get people excited about them, like The Tale of Genji, the first great novel in world literature written by a lady in waiting at the at the Japanese court, uh, a, a, a really powerful uh, text that was written around a thousand, year, a thousand of the Common Era, um, and or a West African epic of Sunjata that commem commemorates the founding of a, a, a realm in the in the in the uh, late Middle Ages, but wasn't written down till the 20th century. It was transmitted orally, and it's really a a great text that can be put side by side with Homer and other great writers. So I, I've come to proselytize a little bit for some texts that are not fully canonical yet, but I think will become canonical in the future. So it's, it's changing. It's a dynamic process. And one of the things that, that you talk about is that it, it, it isn't necessarily just literature that, that has power to tell stories, that, that it filters down into other kinds of writing. Yeah, and, and so, that's so that's so right, because sometimes when we think of literature, we think of a certain small section in the bookstore, and, and it's something we read maybe for entertainment or in a college classroom. But I think when I started to think about the impact of writing and literature on, on history, I, I felt like I needed to expand that definition of, of literature to include all important written stories, and that includes texts that we would consider as religious texts, like, like the Bible or the Buddhist sutras we talked about a moment ago, or political texts like the Declaration of Independence or even the Communist Manifesto. Um, so religious texts, political texts, as well as these foundational epics and, and other forms of literature, all the way to our own uh, newspapers and blogs and, and, and all the new forms that, that are suddenly emerging in our own technological revolution. I think they all need to be included in that bigger picture. Talk about the, the new forms and why you think they need to be included and why it's important as a continuation of this history. Yeah. So one of the uh, the things I like is that when I think of our new forms, that, that some of them aren't so new uh, after all. Uh, take something like our tablets. When I, when I see students sitting cross-legged on their tablets, I'm suddenly reminded of these pictures of ancient scribes who, work, who, who wrote on tablets, on clay tablets, and people hadn't been using tablets for a long time, and suddenly they're back. The, the same with we are sc suddenly scrolling down our screens uh, uh, and 
people had used the scroll in the ancient world, but mostly the scroll had been replaced by the book, a Roman invention. Uh, and, but now suddenly we are back at scrolling. So some of these technologies actually take us back to an earlier moment in, in history. But of course, there are also new forms, uh, uh, new forms of popular uh, writing, such as fan fiction, which I find is find very interesting because it is a democratization where you have authors, of course, who write fabulous stories, but then you have readers who continue to write them and write r r continue stories in, in often very in inventive ways. You have things like very specialized romances that are written, you know, that are published on Kindle and, and on, on Amazon and, and have very, very faithful followings, uh, hyper-specialized romances, very popular, looked down upon by a lot of my colleagues in literature departments. But, <laughs> but I think these texts demand attention, as well as, of course, Twitter, that we are suddenly now exchanging so much information in this very short form, which reminds me also of earlier moments. I, I mentioned the tale of Genji, the, the novel set in medieval Japan, the, the way the court society that's depicted in that novel communicates is through these very short messages that are sent back and forth. And, you know, it matters how long you wait till you answer it. And there's a particular style of question and answer and so on and so forth. And, and so, you know, text messages are new and they're important and we need to study them. But even there, we can go back to these earlier moments. And, and see that they didn't come out of nowhere. It's interesting, too, I mean, in terms of everything old being new again, there was a story just a couple of weeks ago about the elimination of keyboards and with artificial intelligence, people talking their writing and telling stories, and, and that we're now also getting back to this oral tradition somehow. Yeah, and that, that's going to be so fascinating to, to watch. One of the through lines of the book that I that emerged that I quite didn't expect to be so important when I started is the, is the way in which speech, oral storytelling uh, influences literature. Not just at the beginning, of course, I look at these moments when the first oral stories get turned into writing, but it, it continues all the way to our present day. And, and sometimes because there are these oral traditions, as in this West African epic I mentioned, that the, the great form that I, the great written form I used wasn't written down till the late 20th century. Um, or in some cases, censorship. I, I talk about Anna Akhmatova, who lived under Stalin and, and couldn't publish because of censorship in the secret police and started to recite her poems, to memorize them and recite them orally to her, to her friends. But also, as you say, because of technology. Um, and so writing and speech, the two have always been entangled in very interesting ways, and 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 our technology, emerging technologies, are really are, are changing that, and it's going to be very interesting to see what happens with that. Talk a little bit about how your students respond to all of this when they see this continuum, when they begin to understand the importance of literature and, and how it shapes the world, and this sense, as we've been talking about, that, that kind of everything old becomes new again. Talk a little bit about how young people respond to that. What do you see? Yeah, they, you know, they, they really, they, they like that very much. And I've uh, started to, 
to, to come up with all kinds of sort of practical exercises in which they can turn, use that. So, for example, I mentioned the, 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 the short messages that were sent back and forth hundreds every day at the court of Japan. So I, I, I teach students that particular form, and then they exchange these medieval text type text messages on, on on their phones and and it feels very i mean it, you know it's it's a little different and and they are also interested in the differences but it's something that comes very very naturally to them so i think you know this generation of students uh, is has grown up with these uh, you know they're digitally native as as we now say so they're they're i mean they're surprised that they weren't around 20 years ago, let alone 2,000 years ago. But so, so they, 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 they like the idea that what they are doing is actually connected to a long history and that they are participating in that history and that they can, they can explore it. Martin Pochner, his book is The Written World, The Power of Stories to Shape People, History, Civilization. Martin, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Thank you for having me, Jeff. Thank you.